welcome everyone to our event today, Disrupting Democracy in Conversation with Majid Majid. My name is Katrin Nye, I'm a journalist with the BBC, and I'm very pleased to be joined by the former MEP and Lord Mayor of Sheffield, Majid Majid, who's just published his first book, The Art of Disruption. Today's event is part of the Web Roots Democracy Festival, which is marking the end of the organisation after six and a half amazing years. So if you're following along and want to tweet about today's discussion, please do so using the hashtag WebRootsFest. If you're following us on Zoom or Facebook Live, feel free to send questions throughout and we'll try and put them to Majid at the end. So hello, Majid. <laughs> hello, Katrin. It's, it's a real pleasure to be joining you. And of course, like you said, it's a worthwhile to celebrate all the amazing things that web roots have been doing the past six and a bit years to be honest and i'm grateful for everything i'm happy to be here speaking with you just coping like everybody else and yeah everything with a smile on my face well thank you for joining us i loved your book and i'm not just saying that because i have to <laughs> i like a it was so rammed full of positivity because that's a bit lacking right now and I think most for me, especially as like a journalist, you know, it was full of actual ideas, like genuine, like here's an idea, here's how you can do things differently. And I think that's what disruption has to be about because it's a little mm. bit, everyone likes using that word really. And I kind of mm. want to see a bit of evidence of like, well, actually how are you disrupting things and what are your practical ideas for doing it? So, okay, before we talk a bit more about what's in the book, for anyone who doesn't know, can you tell us a bit more about your backstory and how you got into politics in the first place? Okay, very and uh, briefly. So, um, born in Somalia, came to Sheffield uh, with my family as refugees in when I was five years old. And for those that don't know, Sheffield is the first city of sanctuary in the UK. And it was the first refugee refugee settlement and city in the UK. So it's got a very long, rich history in welcoming people from all around the world. Grew up in a Sheffield, which is just a northern post-industrial city, and went to school. And I went to university, studied aquatic zoology, and I think I was just interested in the ocean and everything in it at the time. Fully well known that I didn't want to pursue a career in marine biology or conservation. And then got involved in student politics. That was the first time I actually remember campaigning on anything, and it was from a sports background, I wanted to get better sports provision at university. And then that led me to campaigning to eradicate the hidden cost, cost of university fees. And then it was basically 2014 and um, EU elections, funny enough, at just seeing the rise of UKIP and Nigel Farage. And I remember thinking with all the kind of hate, fear and division that was happening, I just thought if I can at least make my small part of the world, my Sheffield, my community that bit better, that's at least me doing something. So. I got involved in the local campaign to save the local library from closing. And that was, because I guess the library is just so much more than a place where people just collect books and return them. It was a drop-in center. It was, it had services for people. It was, it was so much more. And then decided to join the Green Party. And at the time it was, even though a lot of my family and friends were Labour Party supporters. And I guess the reason I joined the Greens at the time was they were the only red, they were the only party at the time that had a red line against austerity, sort of for free education. So a lot of my values and principles aligned with them. And I was like, what is like, what's this local democracy malarkey? Who are local councillors? And I would literally just get a lot of my education from YouTube, reading things. 
And then I just started to engage with these local decision makers about the issues um, that was affecting me and my community. And then I quickly realized I just couldn't keep on asking the wrong people to do the right thing. So I was like, right, how can I become a counselor? And then decided to put myself forward, campaigned in my community, thankfully got elected. And I was a counselor for two years, which I guess in, in my opinion is a glorified community activist. And one of the great things about it is you get to see the actual results that you earn from the work that you're doing, whether that be going to court with a family to stop their eviction from happening. You get to see it and there and then. And then from there, the opportunity of Lord Mayor presented itself to throw myself into that. And then come 2019, it was, we weren't even meant to have the European elections. And then lo and behold, we had the European elections. And I just remember at the time just thinking like, I just refuse to kind of accept that the few authors of our country were people like Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson, especially when I knew that we had such a better, more hopeful story to tell where I guess we were all the protagonists in some shape. And I was like, right, I'm going to put myself forward. And even though we've not had a green MEP in Yorkshire and Humber before, and of course it helped the fact that I was Lord May and, and long story short, got elected and that was great. And then Brexit happened and then, you kind of just go along with things and stuff, to be honest. So, um, so that's basically in a, in a nutshell. I'm still kind of involved in like, like local politics. So, and um, I kind of like so coming on the back of that. Some of the things I'm doing now at the moment is I am working with some quite a few European organisations in looking at climate justice. So, I've uh, been working with um, about four or five different European organisations and groups. I'm also uh, partnering with a, an arts university in Amsterdam and uh, basically looking at, so I run a program called New Politics and Afrofuturism. Uh, so as well, I'm still, I'm a trustee, uh, chair of trustee in, in Sheffield. So I'm still involved in a lots of different things, basically. Okay. Yeah. One of the things you say in your book, and I think a lot of us think it, is that, um, politics um, and being a politician particularly is for a certain type of person and is for the elite basically. What is it, because it feels quite key to like replicating your story, what is it you think that made you think you could do it, you could be a politician? Right. So you know that we've all been socially conditioned to some degree to I guess expect what politicians are and what their role is and what backgrounds they come from. And I guess even if we look at, um, I guess it's the same for local democracy, local and national and um, governments, like the people that we choose to represent us don't reflect the people they're there to represent. So even if we look at the government cabinet, for example, the majority of them come from a certain background class and they kind of just beg us at how are they truly meant to understand the devastating impacts of austerity or child poverty as it was shown and yet they're making decisions that's going to affect everyone and I guess for me it's um to answer your question it's first of all I guess it helps like seeing like there's that thing like you need to see it to be at times like just by virtue of basically seeing other people in leadership roles, whether that be in politics or not to be honest so for me it was like it was important for me the fact that right it's amazing I'm a counsellor or Lord, may I mean, people, but it's it's what I it's what I do with it that counts. So for me, I always would mentor um, ten young people and um, who wanted to like I guess not even necessarily get involved in politics, but just wanted to become leaders in different things. And like when when I became a councillor, I was the only black person councillor on Sheffield City Council, and I made it my task to kind of get somebody else who like black to kind of represent 
and in the Sheffield City Council. So I supported a lady called Kultum Rivers and in Sheffield and basically just um, supported her, just kind of like campaigned for her, did everything to kind of support her. And then she got elected the year after me. So I think it's it's important to kind of, I guess, in one hand, as, as, as you're climbing with one hand, the other hand, make sure that you're kind of lifting and people and along you. And I guess from my point of view, you're like, even though I, I didn't have any political heroes or anything like that, if I'm being honest with you, I guess there's people that influenced me. Like, I don't know if you know, like um, the artist, taxi driver, Chunky Mark on YouTube or like, and so there, but there really wasn't anything. But for me, it was just, honestly, it was just ordinary people that I knew in my life and my community that, that were my kind of role models that kind of inspired me. And so I guess they're like, for me, it was just a case of, I was like, if they can do it, I can do it kind of thing. I know it sounds a bit, it was really, but I was just like, well, why? It was more of just kind of questioning authority a lot of the time, like questioning and why the system was built the way it is. I was like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And I was just a case, of course I was nervous. And I, of course I had the imposter syndrome. I was like, even when I was like an MEP or Lord Mayor thinking, oh my God, any moment someone's going to catch me out that I'm a fraud. But a lot of the time it was, I guess, just reinstilling that belief in myself. I was like, no, Majid, you're here because people, and <laughs> someone goes, chunky box to go. But like, it was just, just telling me, no, you're here for a reason kind of thing. And honestly, there was a lot of value. And I, I think authenticity played a lot in that. And, and as well, just being unapologetically myself. And yeah, I'll stop talking for a bit. Do you think you've got a natural like ability and a lack of fear of like risk taking? Because one of the things I always think that's really uh, can hold you back, right? For one, if you don't know people in positions of power, if you don't have much money, uh, mm. it's harder to take risks, right? Because it's like, well, I need a job where I get paid properly because I don't have backup and I need to do stuff that won't that won't go wrong because I can't take those risks. How do you think you allow people who don't have backup, by be it financially or through people they know, or like, I don't know, backup careers or whatever, to take a risk and go into politics? I think that can be such a huge block. Yeah, do you know one hundred? Do you know um, bizarrely, like um, Saida Vazi told me once she was like. And who do, people that don't know, she's Baroness, and she used to be conservative, which I think she still is a conservative. Probably a bit questionable, but I think she still is a conservative. But and she and gave me advice saying that it's like before you get into politics, make sure that you've got some financial financial and um, backing, you got money to kind of live it because it, politics should never be your bread and butter because there's going to be times where your own um, values and principles get challenged, and you need to at times feel like, well, no, this is not what I believe, so I'm just going to walk away, rather than basically being tied down to your, basically, like, if you've got your family and your kids and politics, like, your only source of income, and it's going to be hard then to be like, well, I don't believe this is completely wrong, but at the same time, if I don't tow this party line or whatever, I'm not going to have a job kind of thing. So I guess it's a real dilemma a lot of people kind of have to earn, and uh, kind of... Um, Think about, I guess from my from my point of from my specific case, being in the Green Party is great because we haven't got a whip. And we, so basically, even like from like as literally, it's I've never had, and I guess I'll be honest with you, that's one of the appeals that and appealed to me with the Green Party is the fact that I can genuinely say I put the interests of the people that voted for me at the heart of everything. And 
so it's just not to jump around, it's quite interesting because I remember I was a counselor and I used to have even the labour group say, imagine you should like, you should cross the floor and join us, this, this, and I'd always think to myself, but I was like, but why? But then the moment I disagree with what you guys are doing, it goes against everything that the people that have voted for me is, you're just going to remove the whip and throw me out. So I don't see what the appeal is. But I guess just to answer your question, um, but like it's, it's hard. I'll be honest with you. It's, it's hard at times to kind of go against the And people would always ask me, like, imagine like how, especially in an environment that was built to kind of, for people to stick to status quo, kind of not to deviate. How do you have the courage to, I guess, be authentically yourself and take those risks and kind of thing? Especially at the beginning, I was, I was like, I wasn't confident, I'll be honest with you, but I think it was just a case of seeing the support of other people. So I think, I don't I just believe in the power of just being, being yourself and the kind of like, the set, how people really engage and kind of connect with that more than anything else. Cause I think honestly, like people just want to see themselves in politicians. People want to see ordinary people that they can engage. And I think even with that leads to trust and as well, because of course politics has got a bad reputation. I think politics amongst a lot of, some other shit is like one of the least trustworthy um, people and rightfully so if I'm being honest with you. So for me, I guess it was in, in every environment whether that be a council, Lord, MP, I've always, been the same but I feel like it's always been my environment that's been and changed and, I, and as a result people have gravitated towards me and people have listened to me and a lot more but of course I've gained confidence and I think that was because at times I'll be like am I doing it wrong like people like I honestly I even had like the um what's the name and the and civic manager at the town hall like coming to me like crying saying who do you think you are like you're completely like disrespecting the role of Lord Mayor you are and like, honestly, it's like all this stuff, and I'm like, what the heck? But then just seeing the reaction of like, seeing the support I had from ordinary people that I've never actually engaged in politics. And I think for me, that was a great indicator. The fact that I was able to engage people who may not necessarily have known who their local councillor was, who've never engaged in local democracy. So for me, that was a great indicator that I was reaching out to such a wider group of people rather than those people who were already engaged and connected with local democracy or, or, and political leaders in Sheffield. So for me, it was, basically yeah it's and the reality as well is catch that people aren't always going to like you like it's if you're trying to be everyone's cup of tea you might as well be a mug like it's i always had people saying to me that and and oh you have to represent everybody i said well the real rea reality is you can't actually represent everybody we live in a world where everybody has got like different ideas different everything so for me of course i do everything with the best of um, intentions and especially a lot of things, especially like more in the role of Lord Mayor, a lot of things is steeped in tradition. And I think if we'd like, I'd always question, I question everything, you know, honest, but I'd be like, but what, like, why are we doing this? Like, and I realize a lot of people are scared of change more than anything else, but when you really question them, you don't really have the answers for them. And I think for me, it was always trying to find, well, what is the most efficient way of doing things? And why, why do we do things as they are? And a lot of things, a lot of the time people haven't been questioned before I kind of believe in. I always say what is like tradition if it isn't peer pressure from dead people. We used to have shit traditions before, like we can have new traditions. And I just think it's just trying to get people out of their comfort zone more than anything else. And I think when people start to come out of their comfort zone, they quickly realize that that's where a lot of the magic happens. That's where a lot of the, a lot of the kind of good changes happen. Something I thought was central in the book, um, probably what I enjoyed reading the most was where you, would break the rules in your job 
uh, or at least bend them to like the maximum bend. Uh, what's uh, what's your favourite example um, of of breaking the rules or bending the rules when you were a politician? Yeah. As you, yeah. Do you know? Just to kind of quote Maya Angela, she goes, and people don't necessarily remember what you say or do, but they remember how you make them feel. So I guess from early on, I used to, I would always try and engage people on an emotional level more than anything else. And especially, I guess, at, at a time where there's just so much information out there and people's attention spans are getting short, like, how do I always also just get past all that mess and just really get people's attention? And once I, and once I have got their attention, what do I then do with it kind of thing? So I used to like every, like, Every month I would do a kind of campaign and as well, maybe that'd be like one month I'd focus on the NHS or one month I'd focus on and November would be like, remember, so and it'd always be like a photo campaign of me doing something as ridiculous, as stupid as just squatting in, in the town hall, basically. It was like a kind of a creative photo kind of campaign. But I guess there was a point like just kind of just take it back to July in 2019 when yeah, July, July 2018, when the government was rolling the red carpet out for Donald Trump. And as we know, Donald Trump, as, as well as being a racist, misogynist, he's a host of other kind of awful things. And for me, I guess it was important uh, to kind of just put a message that said, listen, he's not welcoming Sheffield. We're going to ban him from Sheffield. Reality is, it's like it's, was he going to come to Sheffield on, on his way through Doncaster? Probably not. Obviously. <laughs> but it was that kind of symbolic gesture, but it was like, no, he's not welcome. And so basically, and um, just to kind of give people a bit of a background. So as a Lord Mayor, there's two main roles. So you, like you've got the first one of chairing the full council meetings. So Lord Mayor kind of, um, you decide um, what the agenda of the meeting is and you chair the meeting. And that's kind of like the most important meeting of the council once a month. And then the other side is you're the like, first citizen ambassador of the city. And within the role of the Lord Mayor, you've got a lady called the Mace Bearer. And her job is to walk with me, in front of me with a golden mace and on, on her shoulder, which is kind of symbolic there to protect me so she can bash people with it, but that doesn't really happen. But she'd walk in front of me and she'd always be like, um, all upstanding for his right worshipful, first citizen, breaker of chains. I'm joking, she didn't say breaker of chains, but like she'd say all these things, she'd be like, and then, uh, and then people like would stand up and I would walk into the council chamber. And that mace is really significant, significant because it represents the monarchy. So there's no decisions that can actually be made at the local council without that and mace being present. So I just remember thinking to myself, I'm like, Majid, are you really gonna walk out into the council chamber, which is full of all the councillors, the press, and yeah, with a t-shirt that says Donald Trump's a waste man and with a sombrero given to you by uh, the local Mexican community, are you actually gonna do that? And I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely gonna do that. And I kind of just walk out and I'd be dead serious. I'd be in, kind of said, right, please be seated. And I would, um, and I'd basically uh, just get, in, get straight to kind of chairing the meeting and people were just completely like a bit baffled by um, what on earth are you doing kind of thing. But for me, I guess it was like, I'd always try and, honestly, whether that be from what I wear for, to, um, what I, um, to what I say and what I do, I always try and, and get, get my point across. And that then led to basically people losing their minds thinking, what on earth is the Lord Mayor doing? How can he even wear a shirt like, or, or pull something like that. But for me, I guess it was that whole point of getting that message across. And I think then that led to a lot of chaotic things like the head of Boeing or just people just getting in touch saying like, asking me to retract it or just, yeah, it kind of blew up. But for me, it was 
I guess I would always use I would always use art, like art as a medium to try and engage people and in politics. Do you think do you think that's the time that you've most um, upset people trying to break the rules? Do you know it's um, I think I like. I always felt I always felt like I've always been upsetting people in some like even like the European Parliament, like it's what's interesting about the European Parliament is that you get the full spectrum of politics. Like you get actually get neo-fascists, like the Golden Dawn in Greece, who are members of the European Parliament, right to like gooey left. So you get everything. And what's interesting in the European Parliament is that you just just to let people the difference between an MEP and an MP is that MEP basically um you sit in the European Parliament in Brussels and you represent all of Europe as well as your constituency. So for example, I represent Yorkshire and Humber, but also what's interesting is as an MEP, you're a legislator. So you actually legislate on certain files. So the file and the files that I had was Creative Europe, the resettlement program for refugees and the anti-discrimination one. Whereas if you're an MP, unless you're in the cabinet, you really don't get to legislate. But it means that you have to work with everybody all across the board. And even, I guess, even within that, I remember actually my first day of and um, being an MEP, being asked if I was lost, even though I had my badge on everything, I was asking if I was lost and that I should leave that and, and because and this is MEPs. And people just were baffled. I was like, no. And I had to kind of explain that I was an MEP, this, this, and that. And then it kind of blew up, but it kind of got resolved at the end. But I just think, honestly, at times by my existence alone is a form of resistance in certain and uh, establishments kind of thing. And it's even within that role, it's like, it's, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. I'd like to think things are changing. And it's, for example, that example isn't something that's solely exclusive to European Parliament. Like, yeah. it, could be, it could be in John Lewis, and I've had people follow me around, like security. So it's like, it, it happens everywhere kind of thing. But I think more so in politics. And European politics, it's a bit strange because it's steeped in hierarchy kind of thing. What was interesting is, I guess, a lot of people in the UK, I think, don't really value or kind of see European Parliament as important or MEPs as important than people, whereas compared to other uh, member and countries in Europe. So uh, like for example, you'll all, MEPs are normally former and heads of state and former ministers of other countries. Once they finish their national duty, then they become MEPs. And so it was just a completely different dynamic, but um, yeah, it was interesting. And you felt that like you had more influence there than if you're an MP. Yeah, I, I, I would say so, definitely. Like, it was even like, a thing like, even just from the legislation point of view, even like, because you'd sit down with legal linguists and you're like arguing over different words. And for example, a win would be changing, like, so it could be so small, but it'll have such a big impact. Like, for example, changing the word should to will in a form, in a, in a piece of legislation, therefore meaning that it will actually happen, that will, rather than, it being a great area and giving people excuse to kind of not follow it just by changing that small word it would change everything and you know that would impact hundreds of millions of people all across Europe kind of thing so it was and but all the interest the reality is just to kind of briefly just touch upon the whole and um, your thing is I remember when I was actually out campaigning to get elected and every room I'd be in I'd always be like can you show like stick your hand up if you know who your representative who your MEP is and say in a room of a hundred, only one or two people would know who the MEPs are. And I just think it just kind of goes to show like people, like I thought MEPs weren't, I'll be honest, I thought MEPs across the board didn't do a good job in terms of engaging with um, 
their and with their um, citizens, but also I think the European Union as a whole could have done things a lot better. Like the simple fact that the way that the um, president of the commission is chosen, I just think is complete farce. If I'm being honest with you, like just to kind of put a caveat, it's as much as I genuinely believe that our best interest is to was to remain in the European Union. It doesn't kind of negate all the ridiculous things that happen. It is by no means a safe haven of progressive ideas. And there's a lot of things that need to change, uh, more or less. So for me, like it would be great, first and foremost, if say that the commission, president of the commission was like, because it is seen as the most powerful role in the European Union was something that every citizen in the European Union got to vote in and not just, because the way it happened is that we just got told this is a person we can vote for them or not kind of thing. But also it's like, it's people in, like listen, if people, also just very quickly, like when I was living in Brussels, I would even speak with local citizens that live there. I'd be like, do you know, and the role of the European Parliament, this is and that. They're like, we actually don't know what it is, but we know it's just this big fancy building that's in Brussels. And they, even audiences in Brussels weren't engaged. So I was like, how do we expect people in Bradford or other parts of, and um, to really engage and feel like they're part of the European Union kind of thing? So there's a lot of things that need to change. But at the same time, it's it's like it's it's incredible in what it does kind of thing. There's a lot of um, positives to it. And people, I always got a lot of stick for saying. Like being a bit negative of the European Union, but I also like it's when you love something enough that you want it to be the best version of itself that it can be, which does mean being critical. But what was interesting, especially at the height of it, it felt like it was so divided that it was you were only which side were you on? And I remember I wrote an, an opinion piece for a political, just explaining my first opinions of the European Parliament and Union. And I remember a lot of the FBPE kind of that kind of contingent on Twitter just absolutely being so critical, saying shame on you, Majesty. And on the complete extreme side, I had the Brexit party MEP celebrating me saying, like, thank you, Majesty. I'm like, well, no, hold on a minute. Like, there has to be room for nuance. Yeah. Kind of thing. So it was just like, it was- Never room for nuance on Twitter. Don't be crazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. One of the other things I want to talk about from your book, one of my favorite stories, uh, was uh, someone you met on a bus. So we're going back to Sheffield now um, and uh, backwards in your career, um, someone called D, right? Mm. Can you tell me about her? Yeah, so for me, um, actually, like, buses have always played a big part in my life. I've just always loved buses. Like I love buses. Buses. Yeah. <laughs> they're, honestly, they're amazing. I feel like everyone's got a bus story to tell. Like, I even like, honestly, like me and my friends, we used to... Um, and weekends and stuff, we just used to like go to the bus station and just used to jump on random buses and probably be a bit of a news. We used to occupy the like double decker on top, top of the back of the bus and just used to just generally hang out there, eat, play games. And just, so it was just like, it was, it was just amazing. And I, of course, when I was working out, I always used to catch the same bus. And I guess I'm the sort of person that would just speak to people on a bus, if I'm being honest with you. But then I'd, like you start to see your regulars, whether that be on a tube or whatever it is. And I guess you start to kind of make those connections. And I made a connection with a lady called and D just by virtue that we had the same pair of Doc Martins on. And she was an, an old lady and we just kind of hit off and we would just kind of like catch up, talk about life, liberty and the pursuit of whatever. And just, it, it was generally quite sweet and it, it was a great relationship. And then, something happened where I just got an email and when I'm like a couple of months down the line, find that that uh, she sadly kind of passed away. And the fact that I uh, and to hear uh, from the person that emailed me, emailed me the struggles that she was having and the fact that 
she'd only kind of get on the bus just 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 because she'd have somebody to talk to because she didn't really have anybody else in her life. And I, it's just, I, I think basically just the moral of the story is the fact that just by, and it's something as simple that costs absolutely nothing, just by virtue of even just smiling or just being courteous and kind to somebody, you really don't know the impact it really, I guess, has on other. And I know it's such a cliche thing to say, be kind. And there's been lots of kind of comments to be kind, but honestly, it is just something so simple, but does really have a lot of power and does go a long way. Especially now more than ever, we really, you don't know what somebody's uh, suffering with, what problems people are and um, suffering in silence. And it's just, it's yeah, it doesn't take a lot, but just by being kind. So yeah, it was just something like, it was quite a touching story. And I just, I guess it was just a way for me to kind of share and show just what can happen just by being kind. And she actually had told the people that were caring for her at the end of her life about you. Yeah. And, the, and the carer didn't was didn't didn't quite believe her, right? Yeah, she she did because she said, "Oh, like um, the Lord bears my mate." Yeah, yeah, I'm wrong. and then she didn't believe it until she kind of reached out and kind of and got in touch, kind of thing. So it was, yeah, it was just it was just sad to be honest. But I'm I'm like if I'm 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 grateful that I did me. I'm grateful that I did even manage. I did. I was able to kind of. Um, just to kind of put a bit of smile on her face, which I'm really kind of grateful for. And I think like it's, I guess even just kind of like reflecting on what's been happening recently, like even the whole recent global events have really, I guess, transformed just what is possible. And it's kind of just re, I guess, kind of proven what many people have um, been thinking that we are only as secure as the most vulnerable and um, people amongst us kind of thing. So I think now more than ever, do we really need to kind of, be kind of even just start start with your family and your friends in all honesty you don't have to kind of i'm not saying you should go on a bus and start being kind of like i guarantee there's people in your life like that you may not even know about that are struggling with something or whatever just your friends your family even your neighbors kind of thing honestly if everybody had good relations with their neighbors i think the world would be a better place kind of thing so just yeah start off small right and it'll have a big impact um on the same sort of theme um in your book there's one thing and this is what i'm talking about when i say that there's a lot of ideas in there what i was particularly uh excited by was when you'd just come up with a new way of doing things so i think mm. so many political conversations or like even conversations like you just had about bringing people together it's the same old stuff Mm. And it's like you've got to try and think of new new ideas, and that's why politics gets a bit stale and old and not very yeah. exciting. And one of the things, anyway, I get to what I was talking about. One of the ideas in the book that I particularly liked was from when you were a councillor, and in your ward, like older the older generation were complaining that students like didn't have any connection or like investment in the community, or just sort of landed there and did their own thing, which is totally true like that is what students often do um and so you arranged for law students to give free legal advice to some older residents and the key thing was that it was a win-win right so the law students got credits on their course and the older residents got free legal advice and it might sound cynical to be like oh you've got to bribe people to connect but in a way, it felt like it was something, it felt completely like revelatory when I read it, but it's 
it's quite obvious that if you incentivize the connections, then they're going to be, well, people are more likely to do them and they have a bigger impact and they're more meaningful. Can you tell me more about that and like how people reacted to it? Yeah, so it's, um, it's interesting because you know, just to kind of give you an example, in Holland, in the Netherlands, they don't call it Holland anymore, in the Netherlands, like for example, they've got this thing where they give free accommodation to students and um, who basically live in a nursing home. Yeah, I've seen that. Kind of help out now and then with the nursing home, which I just think is, is great. But so the world that I represent in Broomhill, Broomhall and Showervale is 50% students, 50% citizens, uh, basically. So you see, and you've got some really socially deprived parts of the world and you've got some really affluent and um, parts of the way. It's a real, it's really dynamic. And for me, I guess there was complaints about students just littering or kind of not caring about where they're. And I guess I can relate because I was a student myself. And I just kind of thought there has to be a way of bringing people together where it's a mutual benefit more than anything else. And I had a good relationship with uh, both the universities, University of Sheffield and Sheffield Hallam. And I guess I was looking for a way where the students that lived in the ward are just, just students to kind of really engage with the older population that lived in, in the ward, just so they can, I guess, kind of, cause they literally would live on the same road. It wasn't even like second, like that section solely students or whatever, they would all live um, together. And I just reached out to the, like the law department. I was like, is, is there uh, anything part of the course, or any modules that kind of requires them? Is there any way that we can work with all the, like with the older uh, members of uh, people that live in the ward and then, we said, listen, that they, they could give some like advice on, on wills and like give some legal advice to all the people. And then we just kind of set this thing up where we had like, it was part of their module. And I would, uh, working with um, one of the community centers, we use that as a facility to kind of be a hub basically to bring um, uh, people together. And as well as of course, just talking about legal advice. It would, they would talk about so much else as well because we, environment, it, was, it wasn't just, clinical like right sit down what kind of help you kind of thing it was important for them to kind of get to know each other so at the beginning of every session we'd kind of like whether that be and we'd kind of go litter picking or we'd do some sort of activity together before we'd actually kind of get involved with and doing the whole advice and kind of legal part and thing and honestly it was it was amazing it was from both ends it was because i guess if, if, you, if you're a student like you don't really you're in a bubble aren't you with your friends yeah and university, the local Tesco's and the bars and clubs. And that's basically, yeah. And a lot of students would kind of saying that, like it, it, they were really grateful to feel that they were part of something. They were actually having some sort of impact in where they live. And they felt like they can say hi to their neighbors. They can say when, when they see them in the shops and stuff. And it was, and for the older people as well, it was great because it's, I guess it's just that intergeneration. Kind of, I know there's a big gap, but it's like, I always find a lot of old people love engaging with young people kind of thing with that. Whatever, and they absolutely just loved it, and you know, you know, understand it. It was just, it was just something so small, but had such an impact both ways, and and it's still happening today as well. And it's just amazing of just bringing people together, kind of thing that costs nothing, and everybody mutually benefits. And I'm sure there can be countless other ways of doing that, basically. One of the things I was thinking when I was reading that was like, how do you? What's the big version of that? What's the like, or it, and like, what does it sometimes feel like, you know, when you're a counsellor and because you didn't have another job when you were a counsellor, you just had a very cheap flat by the sounds of it or a cheap room. Mm, um, and yeah. like, does it feel sometimes like as a counsellor, you can do more than when 
you're more and more senior because you're like, well, how do I do that for the whole of Europe? How do I do that for the whole region? How do I do that for the whole country? Yeah, to a certain degree, I agree, because I guess when you're a councillor, like not only are you like living in that, when you're there day to day and as well, people come to you. Like you're like, a lot, I'd like to think if you're an MP, like you should, you'd be a lot more accessible, but it's, I guess it's, yeah, because it's the sort of stuff that you deal with. Like, for example, and local housing association, and that's got a big part of the ward, said that we are no longer going to, and we're no longer going to be doing minor household repairs, which means if you've got a leaky tap or any kind of, they're not going to, they're going to stop doing that basically. And then that kind of leaves a massive problem because of that. Well, wait a minute, a lot of these residents haven't got the skills, they haven't got the tools to. So how are they meant to kind of fix these and um, these things, these uh, household repairs and stuff? So then um, I managed to um, get a grant um, from um, kind of some sort of voluntary organization. And I found a teacher from the local college, DIY teacher to kind of give free classes to women specifically. It was kind of all women's DIY classes and um, that lived in this area where they kind of, um, lost and houses associations they're not going to do household repairs and we also kind of created a diy bank basically just to kind of um so they can so they didn't have to everyone didn't have to buy their own specific tools that it was kind of community of course and that kind of deals with issues like kind of just empowering them that kind of reinforces that kind of community and okay bring brings people they so say it, it was just it was just great but i just think it's and uh, when you're a local council you can just do things i guess i'll be honest with you like I've had, I've got no experience of being an MP, but even when I was like, you can still do those things. I just think it's at times people either choose to kind of think that they're beyond that, or they feel as if like they shouldn't get involved in that or they're kind of pass it. But it's even, I guess when I was an, even when I was an MEP, I would, I guess my remit was a bit massive, like Yorkshire and Humber's like a massive region, but like I would always every weekend I would, um, so basically like Monday to Thursday, I'd be in Brussels and then the rest I'd come to um, be back in the UK in, in the country. I'd be every weekend, I'd be somewhere different in, in the constituency and people would get in touch with different, like about different issues. But what I found really interesting was, especially when I was Lord Mayor was, I found that the, like the head of the count, like the kind of lead of the council. And, and I, I just felt like they abdicated their responsibility to lead. By that, what I mean is, when people are struggling, people would always come to me with everything. Like people say, like even stuff that was out of my remit as Lord May, but because when people are struggling, they go to who they see the most. They go to the yeah. person who's and out there, who's there talking to people, who's willing to listen kind of thing. And because all the other leaders across it were completely didn't like, weren't, didn't want to be held to account, I thought, and didn't, weren't putting themselves out there. I people coming to me, people at times thought I had a magic wand, this, 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 and that. So I just kind of feel like with leadership, you have to be a portrait, you have to be visible, you have to actually be seen. You can't just be um, endorsing the only time people can speak to me is the council meeting, public questions, which we're not going to advertise and that nobody actually even knows about and how to even engage with that and think that's oh, that's perfectly fine for democracy kind of thing. It, we need to kind of go and above that. And, for me, it just kind of showed me that, like, wow, like, why is everyone like coming to me with all the issues and all the problems? Like, I can't do half the things they asked me, but it was just because everybody else would like the other leaders were kind of abdicating their responsibilities. And it's 
yeah, you have to be, you have to be, and also you have to be vulnerable as well, more than anything else as well. It's quite basic, isn't it? Like I moved yeah. to a new constituency uh, like a year or so ago and my local MP, I remember seeing them in the street like five <laughs> times in the first few months. And I was like, oh my <laughs> God. I was like, they're right there. Like you can ask them something and like, it makes a huge difference. Like standing yeah. there for one time flyering, other time answering questions, other times. And I'd never lived anywhere where that was ever the case. And it, it's absolutely transformational. It makes a massive difference. And even like, I remember when I was chairing the council meetings, I mean, for me, it was really important to, for ordinary citizens to reclaim the space and kind of say, no, this council is yours. It works for you kind of thing. So like one of my um, themes was like, um, was arts and culture. So in Sheffield Town Hall, the council chamber is, is generally really stunning. It's marble, it's very old and looks beautiful. It's like some sort of theater, it looks, it looks amazing. But it was, I was like, how many ordinary citizens actually get to come here? So amazing, so many of those council chambers, aren't they? They're Glasgow, really- Glasgow is like my favorite in the UK, it is. Honestly, I'm surprised. I'm surprised there's not been a documentary on town halls and just like, you know, BBC Four or something. Oh yeah, I'd watch that. But and but for me, like I made a point where like every month I would get a, a someone from like someone from Sheffield and a creative person to come and perform in the council chamber, which isn't built for performing, whatever. it was just built for council business. But for me, it was to reinforce, to, the, to show the local decision makers the value and the wealth and the talent that we had in our city and why we should be supporting it. So whether that be a comedian coming to the council chamber to perform, you can imagine in the middle of like tense meetings coming to perform, but also whether that be a shoe designer, whether that be a poet, you name it, like every month, it was for them to reclaim that space kind of thing. And from like the creative sector in Sheffield, they absolutely relished with that opportunity. And for me, it was, you know, and I'll be honest with you, it was quite sad about it. One of the things that pissed me off as much as lots of different other boroughs was how petty the council was. Because for example, that's the like, well, no, the council chamber was only for council business. And I'd be like, listen, I, I chair the council meetings. I can do what I want. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to have an interval, half-time interval, and we're going to ensure respect. And literally three quarters of them, mainly the Labour Party, I'll be, I'll be quite honest with you, would just get up and kind of just walk out and basically would, I kid you not, would, they would literally stand outside the door until it had finished. And then they would come in and I was like, guys, you're not, you're not getting at me. You're just really being completely disrespectful to someone who's come here to basically the time. And it, it was like, there's so much, I always had a, bit, a long beef with, with the council. And I think a lot of that thing was down to um, power more bizarrely because it's, even though, for example, I didn't have as much executive powers, I did have soft power. And I think for them, it was like, they were quite frustrated that how one person could have more, can gather more media attention, more influence than the council's comms team then put together. And it was always a battle kind of thing where it wouldn't, where it shouldn't have been. Where I would always say, guys, let's work together. And I was even, I would always even ask the council's comms team, I'd be like, guys, I need help with this. I'm a bit overwhelmed with this, this and that. And I did get, I got zero support from the council the entire time I was working there. And that's not to say the council people working there were absolutely supportive and great, but it was, they were like, imagine we, we want to help support, but we got told by our senior officer not to get involved with anything that you're doing, which I thought was just so petty and such a shame because 
everything I was doing wasn't even part, part. It was literally there to benefit Sheffield and bring people together. But it was just pettiness kind of thing. And it was and I, one of the ridiculous things is like, I was a 122nd Lord Mayor of Sheffield. And I kid you not, for the very first time, Catherine, they tried to change the constitution of Lord Mayor just so they can basically stop me from doing what I was doing. And it was, it was, it was ridiculous. But we, we, we move forward. Here we are. So I read that story in your book about some councillors standing outside the chamber when you invited in these local artists. And I was so shocked. What, obviously they're not here to give their side of the story, but what did they say was the reason? Because I can, that, that, that looks so bad. I would have thought yeah, they'd tell you what they have said. a good reason. Yeah, and they, and they actually put in a complaint before they said you can't do this. And their argument was, and, and bear in mind, the council is full of old people that have been there for a long time, kind of thing, that are stuck in their ways. And their whole argument was, is, well, no, the council chamber is only for councillors and for us to kind of discuss council business. It is not a place for entertainment. So kind of said, well, wait a minute. It's like, that's what, but this, you, this council chamber is for people. It's like, it's, it can be wherever it wants to be. Just because it's been done in a certain way for such a long period of time. It doesn't have to be like that. And I was like, well, listen, I, I, I understand. I take your point on board, but I'm here to, I want to do things different. I want to kind of make people feel as if like this council chamber belongs to them. And it's just not this all members club that belongs to us and that's it. It shouldn't be the case and difference of opinion. And I kind of went with that and they just didn't, they just didn't agree with it. And I'll be honest, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, let's, let's call it for what it is. And for some of them, honestly, it was just petty because had I been, honestly, had I been a Labour, and first and foremost, it's worth point saying this, if I was in the Labour Party, I wouldn't have been, I don't think I would have been a councillor. I wouldn't have been Lord Mayor. I wouldn't have been an MEP, just purely because from a lot of my friends who are in the Labour Party and who are young, who are amazing, that do some amazing things, they can't even get a foot in because of the bureaucracy, basically, the party. It's, it's just really hard for people to break through, especially if you're young at the moment. So it's just, yeah, it's just frustrating. Okay, we're going to take some questions now. Got a first question in from Khadija. What advice would you have for young people working in anti-progressive environments for the sake of having a seat at the table? When should we break the rules? And do you know, I would say if, if, if you haven't got a seat at the table, like bring your own chair. And if not, just create your own table. And I think the thing is, like, there are a lot of people who, I guess, um, working in um, different, like, it's, honestly, I, first and foremost, I, I believe that, you, like, from my experience, whether that be seeing young people um, with the whole recent Fridays for the Future and, and protesting for the climate, I want to, for me, like, a lot of the time, these young people are the reason, like, who are the voice of reason a lot of the time where I think they're, ones, they're, the, they're the ones that really push us more than anything else. So I would honestly say is, honestly have faith in yourself. Like it's, I know it can be difficult and daunting, especially going to, being in an environment which is a lot of older people, like always doubting yourself and whatnot, but it's most of the time it's the young people that come with the fresh ideas who are a lot bolder. So I always say it's just stick by your gun, but also just like it's work with other young people as well, because a lot of the time you don't have to do things by yourself because I always get, sometimes young people say, well, I'm really passionate, but I don't know what to do and I don't know how I can make a change. Because there is a belief that, oh, if you're young, you can't really make much of a change because 
you're not you haven't got a fancy title to your name or you don't understand how this works but and honestly the the power of collective organizing is is completely amazing so just by virtue of young people coming together whether that be like online or offline is is really powerful so i would say just find other people that care about it and that have got the same issue that care about the same issues but also just use like every one of us have got some we've all got some degree of influence and what so if you're a writer right if you're a comedian create some funny content we can all have an influence there's a space for every single one of us to and make some sort of difference and of course i would always say start off local but of course join national campaigns as well Sarah Picard says great advice thank you um oh i've got another question here Marek. do you think oh do you think the green party is a help or hindrance to progressive politics in the uk great question bye <laughs> So this is what it is, it's like, the democracy that we've got set up, that we, party politics is what it is. Do you know what I'm saying? We've got party politics, even though it can be toxic, it can be, honestly, there's a, there was a, there's a good argument, it was a case saying, even in, from when it comes to local council, that like we shouldn't even have party politics. But anyway, we've got party politics for what it is. And it's, I think one of the most criminal things that, is, that we've got is, is the voting system. But in terms of the Green Party, I don't think, I would say any like political party is, is a hindrance to and um, um, to progress. Is that, is that, I would I would say the only political party. I would say the Tories. And you can call me mad. You just hate the Tories. You can say this, this, and that. But I generally, in terms of hindrance to progressive politics, and I'd say the Green Party is quite good in that. And I'm not just saying that. I just as a member as a member of the Green Party. But if you look at the, some of the stuff that we're unequivocally that we kind of campaign for, whether that be votes at 16 which we think is absolutely critical right, for democracy to move forward changing the voting system from a first past the post which is so archaic and i, th and I think the only other uh, country that has got first past the post is uh, the vatican state it's just so out of date and for, uh, having free education on all of these things whereas like if we look at the mainstream political parties like let's say labor and the conservatives not like they, they're not in favor of changing the voting system purely because it serves them because it will always be a two horse race and they will get again all the power so if we're talking about and um, is the green party a force for positive change or good for progressive i would 100 percent and agree yes that it is it's a very surprising answer of course you know that, that being said right like it's <laughs> Let's put it, no political party is, is great, right? Of course, there's issues with every single political, of course, some more than others kind of thing. And I will um, no way say that the Green Party is the answer to everything, like 100%. Now, there's a lot of things that it can be better, that it can kind of change um, as well. Question from Maya. What are your plans next uh, and for the future? Yeah. So I guess, and um, if anyone knows me, I'm not someone that really plans a lot for the future, which is a positive and a negative. Like it's, um, I studied aquatic zoology. I, I ran a business, like a digital marketing business for a bit, got into politics and he, he went, but for me, you know, honestly, it's always been, I guess, as long as I feel like I'm learning, taking myself out of my comfort zone, but more important, as long as I feel like I'm having a positive contribution to those around me, I feel content and fulfilled in what I'm doing. Of course, in terms of like what I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of like, for me, it's just like 
addressing some of the pressing issues like in our time, like climate change. So for me, and um, it's the book, what takes a lot of my time is working and trying to tackle the whole climate crisis, mainly through a social and climate justice lens. So my work across Europe and th that work will continue being that because the, the problem of the climate crisis isn't gonna um, go away anytime soon. And as well, like, I'm, like I mentioned, I'm also like working with a amazing bunch of um, people at the uh, University of the Underground in, um, space in Amsterdam, running a program called New Politics and Afrofuturism there. Um, also, and um, I recently- what, that, what does that involve? Tell us more about that. Yeah, so, so basically the program and um, is led by myself along with uh, some amazing international and um, tutors. So in a nutshell, the program really explores how we can use popular culture as a powerful vehicle for propelling progressive social justice narratives to mainstream audiences with a specific focus on Afrofuturisms, Black activism, climate justice and the arts as well. And so we like, and there's um, 14 full-time students that are based all across the world. And so basically that's a six month um, program and um, we're working on. And I also um, recently um, got a commission to do an art piece in Sheffield. So basically I'm just like, yeah, I double different things kind of thing. So like, of course, and I'll be honest with you, I'm the sort of person that um, I don't tend to share a lot of like the things, um, my ambitions of like, unless I've like, until they kind of, they've kind of come to fruition. In, in yeah, yeah, you said that in your book, like you didn't tell your mom you were going to be Lord Mayor until you were basically like gold yeah, yeah, kind of thing, like it's, until it's kind of guy, just because, not that because I believe that jinx or any of that sort of nonsense, but it's just that it's, um, I don't know, I'm just sort of person that kind of just keep things close to my chest until I've kind of like, Accomplish, I've kind of got it, then I can kind of share it with the world, kind of thing. So yeah. I'm, yeah, in case things don't happen. I get that. There's nothing worse than being like, I'm going to do this. And then it's like, yeah, can oh, you imagine? Yeah, and then like, I'm just <laughs> honestly, like, it's, I guess it's a blessing. And I guess it's unfortunate more than anything else is that, of course, I've got a lot of family, friends. Also, there's a lot of support, there's a lot of people in general that always take a keen interest in what I'm doing. And always at times, like, I feel like I'm not put, put positive pressure on me to kind of do better and keep doing more kind of thing. But at times it's also like, oh my God, like I have to do this, I have to achieve this kind of thing. But I guess it's just people care. And if people didn't care about me, people wouldn't give a shit. And it's just, it's, it's nice and it's something um, I'm really um, grateful for. And honestly, it's just on that note, it's just worth saying that it's, um, it would be so selfish of me to be like, everything I've achieved is due to like hard work and hard work alone. As we know, hard work can only get you so far. <clears throat> there needs to be sacrifice. There needs to be opportunity. There needs to be hard work. And it's, I'm grateful to so many people that be my mother who made sacrifices, friends that grounded me, people of Sheffield for putting their faith in me. So yeah, it's just, it's like, it's one of the things I le I've learned, uh, learned quite early on is that you don't do things by yourself and that you do need the support of other people. And I wouldn't be where I am had it not been through countless other people and that I'm grateful for. Got another question. Shoot. James. He says, James says, I'm not young. He's 38. I think that's pretty young. I think we can say that's young. Like people, we live long time these days. That's young. Uh, he's a counsellor. How can I get some, how can someone my age or older encourage younger people to get more politically active? Do you know, uh, first and foremost, it's like, it's, I always think young people are a lot more engaged in politics than, than previous. Like, I remember, do you know what, I look at these, you know, like, I look at young people at the moment, and especially when you could do a lot of protests and people can get together. 
And I see them striking, like, and taking, like, striking. And I don't know what on earth was I doing when I was 40. And I was probably just skiving and just getting up to some sort of mischievous behavior and stuff like that. So first, it's amazing that a lot of young people are a lot more engaged and know what's happening, actually want things and demanding a better future. And I think first and foremost, honestly, it's just a case of just engaging with young people, but also giving them the space. And, and if, if, it's, if it's possible, giving them the skills and the tools. So whether that be literally like, if you're a counselor, there's a lot of things that you can do. Whether that be um, getting and um, running a scheme where you basically, you get young people to shadow you for a day. And you can do that like once a month, you can have one different young person shadow you just so they can see what's, what it's like being a counselor, like even getting them to come with you to different community events, but also working, you like, you can set up different, honestly, when you're a counselor, I feel like possibilities are endless. Cause you can even like, cause a lot of times I feel like when you're a counselor, like a lot of the counselors and the counselors, I think it's always reactory. Like a lot of people are just reacting. Whereas for me, it was always important to kind of be proactive and try and get ahead of things. So like, you can even set up campaigns. You can literally even be like, work with, the, I'm sure wherever you are, there's youth organizations, even schools. You can even literally do a school tour kind of, there's, there's loads of things you can do, but I just think it's about giving young people the space to kind of like, I know you've got like um, youth parliaments and stuff like that. But I think also when, in every big decision that you're making, if you can have young people present in the room or you're kind of consulting young people in your ward or whatever, just thinking about young people having a seat at every, table I think it's really really important and I think yeah I reckon that'll go a long way for sure. Gonna squeeze in a few more questions Got one from yeah. Joss here. Reading your book and listening to this conversation the word dignity rings loud and true all the way through and yet the biggest challenge seems to be is taking on the old farts the established thought that runs through politics the arts and business as the chaos of the day consumes what we thought doesn't work for anyone. So is it bigger than left or right politics, but a redesign of society? If, if so, what measures and factors should we consider to recognize dignity and value? Blimey, do we need to redesign society? And if we do, what measures and factors should we consider to recognize dignity and value? Yeah. So, do you know, honestly, like so far this year, I've, like I've witnessed people like, um, whether that be online or offline, just saying that their situation is completely hopeless, saying that this government is ridiculous and not listening or we can't win. And I just think like at times, like, at times, there are a lot of people who are massively in despair. And I think like despair in itself is something that we can't afford. Like now it's not an option for me, for you, for the planet or anything like that. And I think it's just worth pointing out that the problems that we face didn't just come down from the heavens, like they were made by bad human decisions and mainly by men in suits. So I guess by having good human decisions, we can literally, I guess we can change everything like for the better. So I think we now like, especially at the moment that we're living at the moment, like the realms of what can be done have dramatically been expanded over the recent global events. And I think as a result, we really have to massively reconsider what's possible and be more ambitious because if you think about it, it's like I remember, and um, like for years we were told that um, things weren't possible, that we couldn't change things. Like whether that be, oh, we can't house all the homeless. We've tried it, we can't do it. Then the pandemic hits, and then we house all the homeless. Then for a long time we got told that oh, we can't borrow beyond a certain point. And the pandemic hits, then we borrow record amounts. 
So everything that we got told wasn't possible. It was just a load of BS, if I'm being honest with you. So I guess it just takes the political will and things to change. And I feel like, of course, politics, mainstream politics and party politics and has got its and has got its place in that. But also I think ordinary citizens and ordinary people have got, and there's there's other roles ways we can kind of bring about that change. So I think for me, in terms of, I guess, trying to bring dignity, I think we have to put people first. I know it's heard a count of time, but we have to put people before profit. We have to put people at the center of everything that we're doing. Because like, is it, why is it taken like, for example, the pandemic to, to hit to kind of us to realize who we value the most? Because the people that we were calling low skilled workers and that we didn't need, all of a sudden we realized shit, they're the exact people that we need because they're the people who are our bus drivers, our key workers and the country can't run without them. So it's like, we can't have a healthy economy without healthy people, for example. So it's like, we need to put power back into people's hands and ordinary, and I think we need to have the faith that power lies and stops with us at the end of the day, as much as we get told that we're powerless and we can't actually bring the change that we want to see. And I think really perspective can really change that and everything. And I know as scary and as painful, and as depressing as this year has been so far, it can also be really an opportunity that enables us to kind of grow and be that change. And I guess what doesn't leave me with, give, doesn't give me a bit of confidence is the fact that we've got the worst possible people running the country at the worst possible time. But at the same time, it is an amazing opportunity where I feel like we are at this pivotal moment and where things can and should change, but it's like, which way is it gonna to change towards? So we need to really demand um, that positive future. Final question from Sarah. Earlier on, you mentioned intergenerational exchanges. Can you say a bit more about the value, interest and effectiveness of intergenerational activism compared to young people acting together as a generation? It's, I guess when it comes to inter intergenerational, it's like it's, of course, like if we look at like a lot of everything at the moment, a lot of the decisions is made by all the people. And I think it's, of course, I'm not saying that we should completely get rid of all of all the old people. And I'm not one of the people that say, because some people that say, if you're past the age of 85, you should get half a vote because you may not even be there to kind of and and see the change. But I think honestly, there's a role that 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 kind of all the people and younger people and have got um, to play in society. I, I just think it's, it involves like, for me, it's the, it's the younger people who are, have got the rigor, who are a lot more ambitious, who at times are the protagonists and kind of the ones that are pushing the envelope, the ones that are pushing and um, things to be better, being a bit progressive. So I think young people- you think they're more effective if they're doing it together with older people? Yeah, I think so. Like it's, it's, it's inevitable. I think 100% it's, effective is if we are working together, it goes without saying. But of course, that doesn't mean if you, all the old generation aren't and aren't willing to listen or change. I think we we have to do everything within our God-given right and power to earn, basically put pressure on them and basically take take the power. Right. So I got distracted. Why were you getting distracted? I hope it was interesting. You know, I'll tell you what I'm getting distracted. Bizarrely, I've got like um, some like Lockwoods into Flora. I, somebody sent me, somebody said, yeah, there's a like, we've got flowers for you outside. Oh, <laughs> that's 
lovely. That was me. Was that you? <laughs> so it's I'm just one bit, of our lovely like participants. So I'm a bit like baffled. I'll be quite honest with you. So I'm just like intrigued more than anything else. But yeah, so. Um, yeah. Well, thank you very much. And someone has delivered you flowers right on you to say thank you. Thank you to you. And honestly, massive shout out to everyone. I can recognize a few faces from the students from the University of the Underground. So lovely to see you here. And thanks for everybody for joining us. And shout out to Eric and everybody and Maya and Web Roots Democracy. And thank you, Katrin, for spending a wonderful an hour and a bit with me. It's been a real joyous. Uh, it's been day. great. And thank um, you to Web Roots Democracy for hosting us. Bye. Brilliant. Ciao, guys. <laughs>